0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: In January of 2020, Bloomberg City Lab published an article about a new study from Pittsburgh researchers naming the best and worst cities for Black women. Among cities with at least 100,000 black women, Cleveland came in dead last in terms of livability. In this city with a nearly 50% black population, this news drops like a bomb. And reactions were mixed. Do you think Cleveland is really the worst for black women? And what do you say? Uh, I say... It depends on the person they <laughs> ask. When I dropped it in one of my Black girl group chats, the emojis were just eye rolls. I'm not surprised. Not even a little. It's, it's heartbreaking and also embarrassing. Is it like this everywhere? Is it me? <laughs> like... This city will make or break you. City of Black women that are looking around at their outcomes, their future, their past, and saying, this city makes me anxious. If anybody's out there listening in Cleveland, please get out. On Living for We, we talk to Cleveland's Black women from all walks of life, from the CEO of one of our major healthcare systems to self-starting entrepreneurs, judges, lawyers, doctors, artists, students, and mothers who've experienced loss. We share stories from these women as change makers and architects of their own futures, celebrating their victories, challenges, and personal growth along the way. So is it really true what they say? Is Cleveland deserving of the least livable title? And what can we do to make lasting improvements for Black women in our city? I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, and this is Living for We, a project of connecting the dots between race and health from IdeaStream Public Media. We're standing in front of the movie theater. (laughs) Tell me the story of the significance of Shaker Square to your career. So when I got my first full-time job out of college, I was working as a development assistant for an arts nonprofit called Young Audiences. And their offices were above the movie theater. And that was my job. I I don't know which one of these windows was mine, um, but I had an office. uh, So it was my first office. I was out of cubicle <laughs> life, so I felt like I had graduated. <laughs> you made it. You are out of cubicle it. life. And this is really lifelong Cleveland you. resident what Leah Hudno. She's yes. taking us I'm back to where she had one of her first professional jobs here in Cleveland. As we continue exploring Black women's experiences in the workplace in this episode of Living for We. Leah's dream job was to work in philanthropy because she wanted to make a difference in people's lives. She had just landed an entry-level role at this nonprofit about 10 years ago that she thought was going to be a positive start for her work journey. I was a development assistant, but later on I found out that other members on the senior team were led to believe that I also supported them as well. And you know how you talk to your boss versus those who are just your colleagues. So I would say, okay, I'll get to it. But, you know, that doesn't sound good from the lowest peg on the (laughs) belt telling you she'll get to it. So that situation came to a head with one of the employees at the nonprofit coming into my office. She closed the door, put her body over the doorknob and started yelling and berating me verbally and told me, you know, a whole bunch of curse words and I need to do it. I'm told and she's tired of my attitude. So I stood up and tried to leave the room and she doubled down on being over the doorknob. And I was like, please let me out. Please let me out. Mm -hmm. I knew at that point that I could not respond in a way that I was taught if someone (laughs) closes you into a room, you knock them out. (laughs) I couldn't do that. Um, But you were like, let me be professional in this situation. I didn't know what Because what was happening to me was not what people had prepared me for what professional life looks like. Well, how were you feeling in that moment? I felt humiliated. One, everyone was staring at me, and I was like, as I recall, I was sitting in my office. I don't know what I could have done that rose to the level of that type of response. I remember the next day or two days later, that used to be a... Dewey's coffee shop. Where? Across the square. So they asked me to walk with them to have an intervention between me and this employee. The one who had just verbally abused you. The one that verbally abused me, plus the executive director and the development director. And we sat at a four-person table, and they allowed her to say things like, shitter, get off the pot. You tricked us in your interview. You're not, you're not who you portrayed yourself to be. And after that, she was. it was announced to the staff that she was going on a sabbatical. You know, it was never expressly said, that like, that was wrong. We don't accept this behavior. She's being terminated or we're going to go back through training or anything. She was going on a sabbatical. I'm in an abusive relationship with Cleveland's nonprofit and civic sector. I am because I have been taught the game. I've been. It's not that people haven't said, well, if you do it like this, you might be, you know, you play the game. You but know how to play the game I if you don't, want to. I, I don't want to. And I'm a very confident person. I always have been. And very direct in my communication. I was never raised to coward, to white folk. I had this, like, moment where I was like, you really want to do this work, but this work doesn't want you. What what You know, like, why do you keep chasing something that has clearly told you? You're not welcome. What a lot of people don't know about this nonprofit work in Cleveland is You have to sit in rooms where people continuously disrespect everything that you stand for. And the moment that you decide you want to speak out, you're combative, you're difficult, you're hard to work with, you're angry, you're emotional. This may not be the line of work for you. Give us a peek into that world. Like what were the kind of things that people would say that you found just totally disrespectful and out of line from people who are supposed to be there to help other folks? There was a community program that was rolled out. At this point, I have a young son. One of the officers of the institution comes and says, this is going to change your son's life. What kind of program was it? Oh, it was Say Yes Cleveland. Um, So uh, my response to that was... I can't believe I say this. My response to that was, at this time, you cannot use say a scholarships to go to Howard, and so I don't know how it's going to change his life. You know, a lot of what this business is in Cleveland is white saviorism, and they want you to thank them. And I don't thank people for doing a job they get paid two hundred thousand dollars to do. So maybe they adopt said person of color, or they provide the scholarship, or they build the school, or they send the water to Flint, or you know, they create the nonprofit program. That it changes the life of your six-month-old son, so. And, and you weren't sufficiently grateful. Oh, no, I never am. <laughs> Cleveland is a strong foundation town. Yes. I've heard that from so many people, and I've experienced that. We're sitting here because of foundation money. I have worked for them. They have paid my bills, and— And, and they do good stuff. Yeah. That was a big pause there. But anyway, (laughs) while Cleveland nonprofits and foundations may have paid her bills, that doesn't mean that they actually valued her voice or her insights, despite the fact that much of their work aims to serve people who look like Leah her family, and the people from her old neighborhood. Leah is very proud that she grew up in the Lee Harvard neighborhood in a home built for her family, a rare feat for many black families back then. You have an equity meeting today that you want me to attend. This is what I want to put forth, right? Like you you keep wanting to abuse me for my experience and my identity. I want you to honor it today. When you have to look in the face of the people that you had some control over, that's a very hard conversation to have. There are so many very important people in Cleveland who do not catch the bus, who have never sent their children to Cleveland schools, okay, who don't shop in Cleveland, in the city of Cleveland. Many of the people who work in Cleveland's nonprofit sector don't live in the city of Cleveland. Most of the people that make decisions on what these people's lives will look like do not live in Cleveland and have no plans to move here. The one foundation I worked for, we had a commitment to three majority black neighborhoods, but I was the only black program officer at the time. What? Now, what's wrong with this equation? You so know, what's it like being the black woman in that situation where you've got a voice, a little bit of a voice? Mm hmm. And I turned the dial up. Did you? <laughs> and what happened when you turned the dial up? I don't work there anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Think I see a pattern here.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> trust me, if, if
1: you wanted to find the <clears throat> anti leah club, you would have a lot you need a larger room. So what does that do to you when you have to do this delicate dance to be able to look yourself in the face? What does that do to you over the years in terms of your health and your wellness and your mental health and your physical health? It creates um, you fight to stay healthy to fight if that makes sense. I don't want everything to be a fight. I want to be in rooms where I feel seen and valued. I'm fighting for the power of community because I know it saves lives because it saved my life. When I've been fired from jobs and thought I was never gonna get over the humiliation, like I'll never be able to walk outside again, or you see someone that harmed you in the workplace be named as the leader of the year, you know, all of these different things that are just not my story. These are stories of all of us, black, white, whatever, in this work, there's a culture of silence in Cleveland civic sector where uh, the way I put it is like the you'll never work here vibes are very real in Cleveland. Like you can get blacklisted. It is a thing. People that are in power try to act like they don't know. But it's a thing. What I have tried to do is figure out whether I want to be at the dance, if I'm going to be at the dance, what dance am I doing and who am I dancing with and who's all going to be there and when am I leaving? Since her time at that first nonprofit, Leah has worked in many other similar spaces, but she found it was more of the same. And that led her to start her own nonprofit, The Legacy Perspective. When asked about the study that ranked Cleveland the least livable city for Black women in America, Leah said she was thrilled to finally have data to affirm her experiences. No one believes you. Until someone from outside of Cleveland affirms what you already know. And we had data that no one is going to (laughs) debate. It wasn't a surprise. To me, no, it wasn't a surprise. Because you were living it. Yes. And my mother (laughs) had lived it and her sisters had lived it. My grandmother lived it and my great-grandmother lived it. (laughs) That Cleveland people discovered, you know, that landed like a bomb. (laughs) For some. Okay. Too much. (laughs) That's too much. Not a bottle. It landed like the fairy in my front yard when I got it in my group (laughs) chats. It was like ping, 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 ping. The biggest challenge for me was burgers because there's so many layers to a burger. So you This is our next guest, line, Cleveland resident Ramat Wiley, who's sharing with me what it's like working as a food artist. A you know, worker, it's the people who make food look so good and tantalizing sure in magazines and commercials. Dry, right. you got to dry your meat. <laughs> you got to dry <laughs> it off. You got to dry but it still off. still keep it glistening. Keep it glistening. Lots of mashed potatoes in the background (laughs) on the back of the burger to make sure that everything stays in place. So the mashed potatoes hold the burger up, but they're like invisible, sort of? So we split the burger in half in the back to open it and make it look as big or even bigger than the bun. And we Ah. stuff mashed potatoes In (laughs) in the middle. Ramat is a woman of many talents. She's always on a quest to find her dream job, and she is not afraid to reinvent herself. But she's had some bumps and bruises along the way. Her journey into the world of food began after years of working as a 911 operator in East Cleveland and Cleveland Heights, where she led a movement to unionize the women she worked with. She ultimately succeeded, and a union was created. But she was understandably burnt out and ready to make a change. But at some point, you got tired. you like, tired. I'm My husband okay. said, I got mean. <laughs> He's like, you gotta, it's, so you ready to go back to school because you getting mean. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I don't want to be mean, so. Were you, were you taking it out on the hubby? At the time, he was my boyfriend, and it was like. Uh, he still wanted to be your husband? He still wanted to be my <laughs> husband, apparently. You got a good one. <laughs> Ramat decided it was time to go back to culinary school to pursue her lifelong interest in becoming a chef. But when that started to disappoint her as well, she found a more specific passion in the culinary world. So I was on the line as a pantry cook and also doing assisting as a food stylist part-time. So were you working in the kitchen to pay the bills, but the food styling, was it becoming your passion? It was I mean, becoming Because you went to school to become a chef. Yeah. So you started changing your it mindset. Started, I started changing my mindset on How the did line. that happen? There was a lot more discovery in food styling than there was working in a hot kitchen full of men who don't care how clean you keep your station. They're going to mess it up anyway. So I could be as particular about things that I wanted to as a food stylist. It got me more work on the line, though, because I was asked by banquets all the time to plate all of their salads before I left. Why is there more work being put on me? Mm -hmm. because you do it. You do it so well. Right. (laughs) Like here you were, you had left your job to go to school, to become a chef, and then you find yourself in the kitchen. It was, (laughs) it was not different from culinary school itself. The kitchen is definitely a boys club. I was the only woman on the line, so I would also be given more work there. I'd have to prep everything for my station and then plate desserts. I'm running from one end of the kitchen to the other. So how were you treated in the boys club? They tried me. Then they knew when I was there that I demanded my respect. What do you mean they tried you? They would mess up my stuff on purpose. Putting a french fry in my freshly cut radishes. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think they would have treated a guy like that fresh out of school? No. On the side, though, food styling was still an outlet that was giving her creative freedom. It was... Making me see things that I've never seen before. Um, I was like, this is cool. If I can I can travel for work and I can dine in the best restaurants and we'll take clients out to dinner and I can curate the entire dinner. Like this is really cool. This is nice. It was opening up a whole new world. A for whole you. new world. But I was only one that looked like me in it. <laughs> Once I left the kitchen, I would work 12 hour days. You know, do it over and over and over again. I'm like, okay, I, I really like this. This is really cool. The money's great, right? <laughs> I'm making money I've never seen before as well. But it got kind of daunting when I saw other people being put on a pedestal. So you were still an assistant. I was still point. an assistant at that point. But you were love. it. sounds like you were loving it. You were having I was a good loving time. It. You were yep. traveling. Passion. You found your passion. I found my passion. So the 12 Hours probably didn't feel like 12 Hours. It didn't. Hours. At the same time, she was trying to ascend the ladder at her job. She noticed folks around her moving up while she stayed in place. So what was the difference between what you saw other people doing and what you were doing? They were given chances to style on other sets. Also have different opportunities than I had. And why do you think that was? I'll say it's because I'm black. I wasn't the thin, beautiful white girl who can style, but she, you know, she also is just gorgeous. I wasn't relatable. Did you say anything? No. I didn't want to mess up what I had going. I started questioning myself, like maybe it's just because I just graduated. Maybe that's why I'm not a part of this or maybe I haven't been here long enough or, you know. I had so many different excuses that I was giving in my head. And that's what happens. And so you saw these people who, you know, you felt were your equals. They weren't below you or anything. Mm -mm. It was like, why am I not in that group? Yeah. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not good enough. But are you coming to this client dinner? Okay, we need you to go ahead and pick out the menu. Vermont was relied on to provide great work, and she did just that. But when she wasn't being included in important meetings and career-advancing projects, she felt that she was being taken advantage of, and she was not standing for it anymore. You said, I'm out. I'm out. I'm going to go do a few more freelance gigs, and I'm out. Did you have a plan? No. Because I didn't know the pandemic was coming. I thought I would just continue to work as a freelance food stylist until I figure out what I want to do next. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, well. And so I was sitting at home and reading and crying and meditating and trying to figure out what was next. And I was just like, what would you do if you can do the biggest thing you wanted to do and I was like huh what is that I was like I've always loved spices whenever I travel for work and when we travel for our honeymoon to France it was spices and finding out different cuisines and I was like huh that's chef and you came back <laughs> <laughs> and I was like oh I would I would open a spice shop but I don't know how to do all of that <laughs> And I was like, well, it seems like I got space and opportunity at this point, so I'll figure it out. I had also come across a space. Where was the space? Van Aken Market Hall. Wow, that was pretty audacious. Yeah. What gave you the courage to do that? <laughs> that's that was, that's pretty cool. It's funny because that was actually the word of the year with my church was audacious. We would say, we're gonna pray audacious prayers, we're gonna do audacious work. And I didn't think anything of it at the time. I was just doing what I felt I needed to do. But that was sinking into your spirit. And your pastor, well, he declared it the, the year of thinking audaciously. She, yes. She. She. Okay. Yes. All
0: right. <laughs> she.
1: <laughs> Let's get that straight. She declared this is the year of thinking big. So welcome to a Dune Spice Shop. Um, We're going to start over here in our blend section. So on the blend wall, we have um, a few of our very signature blends. Um, The favorites are the citrus garlic, our maple Cajun. Our mission is to source quality spices Fair trade from single source farms, organic or organically farmed. And we also give back to the community. We give monetary donations to people who are feeding people in Cleveland. I call it doing the work. How did you finance it? My husband gave me $300. <laughs> um, $300. dollars is what I started doing. Yeah, twice $300 that a dream. Like, that's funny. <laughs> but no, um... Once it grew to what it is now, uh, KeyBank had a whole national commercial with KeyBank. Like Ramat, a chef and creative entrepreneur who didn't let a pandemic stop her from starting a dune spice co, where she curates spices inspired by her heritage. Ramat's big break with KeyBank was partially arranged by a friend of hers, another Black woman. It's my duty to make sure that I provide that information for other Black women who want to do the same thing, who want to start their businesses. I want to make sure that they have the same knowledge of what's available to them because there are other Black women who want to make sure that small businesses are funded in Cleveland. How did you get here? How did that journey happen to get you to this wonderful place that you are now? I think it was sitting at home. During that time at the beginning of the pandemic, I also think it was going to therapy. If I'm not supposed to be doing this, I would not be affirmed by myself and so many others. That's what keeps me motivated and going. Because so many Black women stay in spaces where they're not being affirmed out of fear. Fear. Big fear. What's going to happen if I leave? Is it, Am I enough? I meet a lot of women who want to start their own businesses and are terrified of what will happen next. And they're like, how did you do I'm like, I have no idea. I just, I had to step out on faith. I had to, it was either this or, or what, go back to doing something for somebody else. There's a reason why I've gone through so much. I have to be triumphant on the other side of that. And I think that's what really, really drives me. One of the things we are striving to do through the work of many organizations like Project Noir is for Black women to find solutions for Black women. Yes, and we have to support one another. It can't be, oh, I see her doing that over there and I don't want to support her because I don't like her. I want to see us work together more. So maybe the answer for making Cleveland a more livable city for Black women is for us to see each other. Yes, There is a way that we can all work together and utilize our individual skills collectively. So the answer is us. Us. We all work together. exploring what the workplace is like for Black women. In part one, we spoke to three women who broke barriers in Cleveland. And in this episode, we spoke to two younger women who are carving out their own paths to success despite it all. Now we're bringing back our expert to talk about how we can all cope with a sometimes rocky world of work for Black women. So Dr. Angela Neal Barnett, welcome back to Living for We. I'm glad to be here, Marlene. So we're Talking about the workplace now, the last episode and this episode. And, you know, we hear some common themes from the women about the issues that they face and the struggles in the workplace. So what that tells us is that there are a lot of Black women in Cleveland dealing with these same issues. You're saying
0: that Black women should think about being in therapy. I think therapy is very helpful. It's someone to say this, this, this is happening to me. And it's a way to build action plans for yourself. It's also a way to give yourself grace and mm-hmm. the kind of grace that Aretha sings about. Mm-hmm. that amazing grace. And to learn how to recognize that and then deal with it is always a good thing. And just to
1: have somebody to say, What you think you're experiencing is real. It's it's, it's real.
0: (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's happening. It's not a figment of your imagination. You're not delusional. You're not paranoid. Black women are always told when they're inappropriate. They're angry. They're aggressive. They're scaring people. And when white women do it, not a peep. And that's, you know, Leah's case is a prime example of uh, and who was aggressive and who, scary who in me. that situation.
1: Yeah. She was, you know, not too long out of college. She's fresh, she's idealistic, and she comes into this workplace and faces this trauma and she's like, "Oh my god. When you're older like me and you've weathered some storms, you you know, you find some coping strategies. But when you're young like that and you you face this reality for the first time, it can
0: make or break you. That's why I think women like us, our age, our, <laughs> our, <laughs> are so important. When we are functioning as mentors, what we want to teach these women is that we are here to protect your spirit. Even if you have this really bad experience, this failure experience, again, you know you can rise. In our last
1: episode, we spoke to three dynamic Black women at the top of their game and deep into their careers. Ramona Robinson, news anchor and author. When I want something, I never give up. I always believe in a better day. Arian Kirkpatrick, CEO of the AKA team and Harvest of Ohio. I just want to be a part of the team that makes a
0: difference here.
1: Oh, it's the worst place Mm -hmm. to live. Mm -hmm. Well, let's change that and Cleveland Housing Court Judge Monet Scott. I just remember saying, I want to be somebody that determines fairness. That's the
0: only way I could express it.
1: Dr. Angela had thoughts to share on their experiences
0: as well. What we have to remember as Black women is that when we are good at our jobs, there's a whole bunch of white men and white women that we are making angry. And if we know that going in, that kind of helps us. Last time we talked, you talked about your theme song being Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around. Mm -hmm. And all the women that we've talked to are women who said the microaggressions almost became too much for me to bear. But I knew I was living my purpose and I had come too far to turn around now. We definitely heard that in Ramona's story. And
1: I loved how she talked about don't settle. Don't just sit there in a job for 10 years where you're being treated bad and think,
0: well, it's probably not any better anyplace else. Sometimes we do that because remember, this is the worst city for Black women, Mm -hmm. right? If that's what the data says, where are we going to get better? Or if we're the primary breadwinner, It's on us to keep the roof over our baby's heads. Do we stay? But what the research says is that if you are a woman and you are in that kind of job, it's worse. It creates more stress for you. It creates more stress for your babies. Our children do better when we are working at a job that we love and that allows us to thrive. So nobody's saying go out and quit without another job, but don't settle. don't. Don't 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 settle. And that's why many people go. That's why many of us are entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship is actually born out of, for many of us, microaggressions and racism. That's an interesting point. So we just
1: decide, I'm just going to go out and do my own thing. Do your own thing. Do your own thing. But even when you do that, as we found in Ariane's case, that she started this business, it's it's thriving. She is really at the top of her game. She's getting all kind of accolades from people in the business world. But then there's that other side. The jealousy. The jealousy.
0: And the jealousy comes from both within the race And from outside of the
1: race. One of the devastating sides of Arianne's story, despite her wonderful
0: success, it's really impacting her health. Yes, stress impacts her health. And Black women face more stressors than just about anyone else in this country. The old saying is, Black don't crack. And so when you look at Black women, on the outside, they look fine. But when you look on the inside, all of these factors create what's called weathering. So while black don't crack on the outside, on the inside, we are aging faster, quicker than anyone else.
1: And we also feature many women in these episodes who are breaking barriers. There's always this little extra scrutiny on Black women when they break these barriers. I even think on the national level, like our vice president, Kamala Harris, and Michelle Obama when she was first lady. When Black women go into these spaces, it's rough. It's incredibly rough.
0: Several of the women talk about having therapists just to deal with how rough it is. Being a black woman, first of all, is not for the faint of heart to begin (laughs) with. And then to break barriers just makes it even more difficult. And the ability to remain hopeful that allows us to rise, to soar.
1: One of the things I love about uh, Ramat's story is how she is just so persistent in pursuing her dream.
0: Yes. And she has support. I mean, she talks about her, her husband. Yes. She talks about her therapist. That's support. And the... Wisdom of the ancestors and what happened in her life propels her towards her dreams and to those higher levels. They're the ones who say, come on, baby, you can do this. This is what you've always wanted. And we all need an amen corner or a cheering section somewhere in the background, willing us forward.
1: next episode, we start the conversation about Black women in Cleveland's medical system. The good, the bad, and the ugly. There was another woman having major migraines, another woman of color, screaming at the top of her lungs, and I'm bleeding out, and neither one of us are being attended to. Why me? Like, why my baby? When Black women walk into a healthcare provider's office, they're not walking in there with dollar signs across their forehead. They're a Black female walking in a door. Been enjoying listening to your voicemails about your experiences as black women in Cleveland. We have another message this week from one of our listeners. Born and raised here, lived here my whole life. It sucks. The health care stuff. I mean, I'll say if you can find a black female doctor, then the health care is not so bad usually. But yeah, it's pretty bad, it, especially if you need any kind of mental health care. Education, decent, but good luck getting a job that will pay you a livable wage, and if you do get one that pays your livable wage, good luck being treated like a human once you get there. I feel like we've been failed, not just by our government, but just by literally anyone who's in charge of anything around here. Good luck trying to date, good luck trying to exist as someone who's not a cis white person. You know, I've fought to make a good life for myself. I think I'm doing okay, but it's not because of anyone else.
0: So <laughs>
1: yeah you out of 10. Wouldn't recommend. If you want to leave us a message, our number is 216-223-8312. That's 216-223-8312. You may just hear yourself on the podcast. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for joining us. You can find more episodes of Living for We on ideastream.org slash We, and wherever you get your podcasts. This past week, we celebrated being included in Apple Podcasts' new and noteworthy section. Thank you for helping us get there by leaving us such great reviews and for sharing the show. Living for We is part of the Connecting the Dots Between Race and Health initiative from IdeaStream Public Media, produced by Evergreen Podcasts and made possible by generous support from the Dr. Donald J. Goodman and Ruth Weber Goodman Philanthropic Fund of the Cleveland Foundation. The Living for We team includes myself, Marlene Harris-Taylor, host and executive producer, Hannah Ray Leach as our lead producer, and Hey Fran Hay as producer and creative director. Chichi and Kimra and Bethany Studenik of Enlightened Solutions are our researchers, data analysts, and community partners. We get production help from Stephanie Chekalinski. Original music, including our theme song, is by Cleveland artist Sophie Scruggs. Our mix engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. We'll see you soon.